in the presence of God and pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, now as we come to your word, I pray that you would grant to us grace. Um, God, it's amazing to think that the very God who made everything, the very God who is pure and holy and infinite in his being and his wisdom and his power uh, and his holiness and his goodness and his truth speaks to us. You know, God, we've been doing this, many of us, for literally decades. Every week, sometimes, I trust every day, opening your word, I pray that we never stop marveling at the fact that you've spoken to us like this. And so I pray that you would grant us grace to hear God, we don't come because we're smart enough. We don't come because we're good enough. We don't come because we deserve to have an audience with God. We come because of your grace. Because rather than cast us out of your presence, you've drawn us to yourself. Rather than requiring us to be able to earn our way, merit our way, into your presence to prove ourselves. You've sent another to do all of that. And so we come in him. We come because of him. We come because of what he's done. And we come because your spirit has granted us new life and drawn us to Christ, enabled us to see the very glory of God in his face. And so, Father, we come to listen. So enable us to do that I pray that you would cast aside every distraction from our minds, from our hearts, uh, that we would be uh, warm, pliable clay in your hands. This we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to Acts in chapter 9. Acts in chapter 9, please. I want to begin reading. hope this isn't too confusing to you, but in the middle of verse 19, at least in the version from which I read the English Standard Version, there's a break in a sentence. And so the beginning of the second sentence in verse 19, and then to begin and to read through verse 31. Hear the word of God. For some days... Uh, He was with the disciples at Damascus. The he there is Saul. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He's the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them on the road, uh, how on the road he had seen the Lord 
who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out uh, among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and set him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplies. Now, the big idea in the book of Acts, what we've been seeing as we've been working our way through here, is the spread of the gospel, the building of the church, and the manifestation of the kingdom of God. That's the big idea. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing the spread of the gospel. That is, as people go around and tell people about Jesus and tell them uh, about uh, repentance and forgiveness of sins in Christ and all of that, um, we see that. What we see is the, the building of the church because the church is comprised of those who make profession of faith in Jesus. And so we see uh, the gospel being spread. We see people coming to faith. We see the church being built. We see the kingdom of God manifested. That is, we see the rule of God shown, revealed, manifested in the lives of people. As people come to faith, we're seeing the very rule of Christ conquering their hearts, this very one who's conquered sin and death. And so we see that in the the book of Acts. That's the big picture. It follows uh, from what we would expect as we have read, if we've read through the Gospels. It it follows from what we call the Great Commission uh, in Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so Jesus had commissioned his his disciples, his apostles to go. And so we're seeing that. The way that Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts that we've been reading, the way Luke lays this out at the end of his gospel is like this. Speaks of Jesus meeting with his disciples after his resurrection. He writes, Then he, that is Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Uh, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And then Luke uh, completes that, if you will, brings that to fruition uh, in the book of Acts as he lays out in the first chapter. uh, And he says to them in verse 8, after he tells them that they should wait in Jerusalem, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so so it's, it's all of that. That's what we're seeing as we're reading through the, big, the book of Acts. That's the big idea. The spread of the gospel, the building of the church, the manifestation that is being able to really see the kingdom of God. And as we've been, been working our way through, we've found various summary statements to tell us of the success of that. For instance, in chapter 2 and verse 41, we read this. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So we see the spread of the gospel, the building of the church, the manifestation of the kingdom. Right there, 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached were added to their number. 
Uh, and then we move on later in that very same passage at the end of verse uh, 47 we read, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. That's the big idea. That's what Luke wants us to see. That Jesus had said, you'll be my witnesses. And look, it's happening. The gospel is spreading. The church is being built. The kingdom is being manifested. Then in chapter 4 and verse 4, we read uh, a similar kind of thing. But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And so counting women, uh, who knows? There could have been 10,000 or more in Jerusalem. So we see all of this taking place. That's what Luke wants us to understand uh, and he wants us to see. And then over in chapter 5 and verse 14, we read this. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And then in chapter 6, another statement. And the, verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So, so even those... And, and then what we read in, in this passage uh, this morning in verse 31, that, uh, And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit... It multiplied, that is, the church. And so the gospel is being spread, the church is being built, the very power of God, the kingdom of God, the rule of God is being manifested, it's being shown. And that's all big. And that's really, in some ways, easy for us to see as we're working our way through the book of Acts. We hear the sermons preached. We, we see the persecution and the courage of the people of God. Uh, we see the miracles that take place. A, a man who had never walked out in his 40s is walking. And so we see that kind of thing. And we read of the other miracles that were taking place. And so, so all of that is very easy to see that, that, that this word is being spread. But there are some subtleties that, that, that I think it's good for us just to back up and take a look at lest we miss them. Uh, for instance, in chapter 6, uh, there was a situation where there was... a difficulty with some of the widows in the church and and it seemed a rather ho-hum problem compared to the persecution and compared to everything else but it was huge for the apostles they said wait a minute this could this could this could slow down everything if we have to tend to this then then we're gonna have to stop the praying that we're doing stop the teaching that we're doing somehow we've got to deal with this particular issue it doesn't seem like a big one it's just that some of the widows feel like they're not getting as much food as the others and it doesn't seem like it's the same kind of magnitude as the apostles getting arrested but but it's huge not only is it huge for those particular people who want food huge from a justice standpoint but huge because it could slow everything down and so just sort of matter-of-factly, they, they appoint some wise and spirit-filled men who come and, and, and solve the problem. And it, it's really easy for us to just rush through that. But we realize that in the context of the life of the church, if there isn't some organization, if there isn't some wisdom that's applied to help people, then, then it's going to gum up everything. And, and we're not going to be able to spread the gospel, see the church built, and manifest the kingdom. Uh, and so we read at the end of that a very remarkable thing. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied. Now, in the passage that I just read, there's a subtlety, I think, at least for me, to see. Uh, it's not everything there that we'll need. We'll need to do some work to, to get at it. But there's a subtlety that was true in this pioneer church, this new church, if you will, this first century church, that must be true of us as well. Because if it isn't true of us as 
if it wasn't true of them, then the spread of the gospel, the building of the church, the manifestation of the kingdom could well be thwarted. So it's important for us to really see it. And it's modeled for us in a particular person. It's modeled for us in this person named Barnabas. We, read, we see his name in verse 27. And we've come across him once before, and we'll come across him a good bit as we read through the book of Acts. We came across him in chapter 4. Uh, and you might remember from there that his given name isn't Barnabas. His given name is Joseph. He's a Jew, he's a Levite. But his given name is Joseph, but his nickname uh, was Barnabas, just like you might call a left-handed kid lefty or a red-headed kid red. Uh, his, his, his nickname was Barnabas because they saw something about him that made that nickname stick. And what they saw in him was the very meaning of that little expression, Barnabas, because Barnabas means son of encouragement. The little expression son of meaning he has the characteristics of. And so his father would be Mr. Encouragement. And so he had his father's eyes. He had his father's look about him. And so if you knew what encouragement was, then you would see this person. He was the very manifestation of encouragement. And, 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 and my point here is that he was crucial, very important in the life of this early church. The gospel, the church, the kingdom would have been thwarted had he not, and who God made him to be, not been there, <clears throat> excuse me, and been in his uh, particular midst. So we can see what he does just in this particular instance. Now, we don't have all the details of Saul's um, life here. Uh, if you read Galatians chapter 1, Paul kind of gives a bit of a autobiography there of what's going on logistically. The logistics aren't important for us here. The logistics don't seem to be particularly important for Luke, at least all the details. But if we piece it all together, it goes something like this. Saul of Tarsus was arrested by Jesus on the road to Damascus and, and converted in an amazing way. Remember who Saul was, a persecutor of the church, very easy to say. But remember that he actually uh, 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 supervised the execution of believers. And so people in that day probably knew people that Saul had executed and others he had imprisoned. And so by any standard, he was a horrible man. He was a terrorist. And, and he was converted. And he was in Damascus, ended up there at the time, uh, stayed there, we don't know how long, but it doesn't appear very long. And then he went off for a three-year period of time to Arabia, which seems like a long way off to us, because it is. But to them, it wasn't that far off. It was like going to Kansas City. And so he went there for three years. We don't know exactly what took place there, but he uh, ended up receiving this great revelation concerning Jesus. And then he goes back to Damascus. It's likely then where we pick this up. Uh, when he preaches there and uh, uh, he's persecuted, ironically, and he's then had to leave the city and he comes to Jerusalem. When he comes to Jerusalem, uh, the apostles are skeptical. In fact, worse than that, they're afraid of him. Now, that's a reasonable, rational response. You know, if you came in this morning and you read in the bulletin that Ben Laden was preaching this morning 
you might wonder about that. Right? I mean, and that's what it would be like. And so here this very one, this terrorist, is now preaching. And the apostles were afraid of him. You can only imagine what they may have been thinking, that he's worse than we ever thought, that now he's trying to infiltrate us from the inside. And just when he does that, he'll have us all arrested and we'll all be dead by morning or something like that. But then this one Barnabas, this son of encouragement, this one who is able, it appears, to see what the apostles aren't seeing, comes alongside him stands in his place before them, becomes his advocate, and he lays out Saul's case. So much so that the apostles receive Saul and they give him place among them. Barnabas, son of encouragement. In fact, that's exactly what the word means, encouragement. It means to come alongside, to take the place of, to be an advocate for, to speak a word about or for or to in such a way that gives courage, that gives hope, that enables one to continue and persevere. You know that. You know when you've been discouraged and you know how people can further discourage you or encourage you by how they come to you, what they say to you, and and, and all of that. In fact, that little word, the Greek word, Uh, Parakaleo is the Greek word. The word para means to come alongside. We use that word all the time with uh, paraprofessional, for instance. Someone who comes alongside a professional and helps them. Or we use the expression around here a lot, parachurch. That is, organizations like University and Campus Crusade and Navigators and Young Life and so forth that come alongside the church and help in particular matters. We love them because they come to bring assistance to the work which we're doing. And so we partner with them And so someone who is para comes alongside. Kaleo means to call. So an encourager is one who's been called to come alongside and to be an advocate for, to speak for, to speak to, in some way that encourages, that is, that brings courage, that takes someone who's down, that takes someone who's outside and lifts them up and brings them in, in such a way that they're enabled to continue and enabled to continue to persevere. And it appears as if, as human beings, number one, but most certainly as Christians, that we're wired to need encouragement. In fact, uh, that's the role, one of the roles of the prophet. If you read in Isaiah chapter 40, how does that begin for those of you who know that passage? God says to Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people, Israel. The little word comfort means to encourage, to come alongside, to speak a word that will give them courage. And if you know the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, you know that by that time you're pretty doggone depressed, right? Everything pretty much has been obliterated. Uh, And now the prophet is to come and bring a word. And he speaks to them this word of redemption, this word of the very love of God. He says, now I want to tell you something that will give you courage. I want you to see something that you haven't seen yet that will give you courage. And so you see, it shouldn't surprise us that another Greek word, parakletos, similar to parakaleo, if you want to do the language thing, parakletos is a word used of Jesus and a word used of the Holy Spirit. And so when uh, Jesus is referred to as our advocate, 
it means that he's taking our place. He's the one who's encouraging. He's speaking a word about us and to us to give us courage that we may understand that we're forgiven and, and we can enter into the very presence of God. And when the Holy Spirit is spoken of as one who is our comforter, he's spoken of as the one who's, who encourages us, who gives us courage, who comes alongside us and takes our place so that we can know that we belong to God. And that should give us courage, you see. Because when we speak of encouragement, we're not simply speaking about, uh, about puffing up our egos, about coming to someone and saying, oh, don't worry, you can do that. That's not always encouraging when you've failed 50 times. To have someone say, you can do that. You go, no, I can't. That's why I'm discouraged. (laughs) If I could do it, it'd be done and I'd be happy. But I can't. And so encouragement isn't coming alongside someone simply and puffing them up and helping their self-esteem and all of that, saying, you can do this, you're a good guy and all that. It's coming to someone and speaking to them a word of truth Something that God is about. Something that God is doing. Something that's true about God in them. That they can really bank on and say, yes, now that gives me courage. And so as Isaiah comes to the people, he speaks to them about God and he says, there's redemption. There's forgiveness in God. Trust him. You've just been made sad and discouraged because all your sins have been revealed. But now I want to tell you that there's a God who forgives and God who redeems. And so trust in him. And the Holy Spirit comes to us in the same way. And he brings conviction of our sin. But then he doesn't stop there. He speaks that word to encourage, to comfort. And he says, yes, it is true about your sin. And it is true about what your sin deserves. But there is this one Jesus who's been sent by God. And you can bank on him. You can trust in him that he took all of this. He took this penalty. And that's to be a good word. That's to be an encouraging word. That's to give us confidence so that when we stand in the presence of God, we'll say, yes, he really does love me. Yes, he really does receive me. It wouldn't help you. It wouldn't encourage you if I said to you, hey, listen, God will receive you if you can become perfect. God will receive you because you're just a good person. And you'd go, then God doesn't see you well. That doesn't really help me. But when you come with a word that says, God will receive you because Jesus stands for you, and you, as a one who trusts in him, stand in him. And you go, whew, all right, that gives me courage to walk into the presence of God. Or when someone comes and says, God is with you, Well, if you're in his disfavor, that's not very comforting. That's not very helpful. But when someone says God is with you and you know that he's received you because of Jesus, and you go, that's encouraging. That's strengthening. That brings me hope. That gives me courage. And you see, we're wired to need that. And if we don't have people in our lives not looking at us and rebuking us and telling us all the things that God will do if he ever caught us, but speaking to us that which is true because of Jesus in us, we'll shrivel up and die. If we don't have the Barnabases, or maybe the Barnabies, I guess, um, if we don't have people like that in our lives, you see, then we'll miss it. Uh, For instance... In, in, in Hebrews, 
in chapter 10, a very uh, famous passage, I suppose, for church people, because we use it a lot. But in chapter 10, let me begin reading with verse 19. We read this. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, okay, all of that's really loaded stuff. I don't have time to deal with it, but he's just saying to us, because of what Jesus has done, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Says we can, because of what Jesus has done, we've been cleansed so we can draw near to God. So let's do that with full assurance. Don't, don't be timid. Come into the very presence of God. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who, who, who promised is faithful. So, so we can come into his presence because he's faithful. He made the promise that in Jesus we're accepted, so come in. Um, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And he's saying, listen, we need to, we need to have this encouragement. We need to be able to, to hear from one another what is true about God and what God is doing in our lives and in our midst so that we'll have courage to continue on, to persevere, to do the things that God has commanded for us and prepared for us to do. If we don't have that, if all we have are criticizers, if we don't have encouragers, we'll shrivel up and die. He says we need to do this. And, and the reason for that is because there's much to discourage us. I mean, I mean, you live, I live. There's much to discourage us in our lives. There's, our, there's the presence of our stinking sin, right? Doesn't that discourage you? It's discouraging to me. When I wake up in the morning, and sometime between the paper and breakfast, I've thought something, I've done something, I've said something, I've neglected to think, say, or do something. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's discouraging. And I've been walking with the Lord for a long time. And it's still true in my life with some of the thoughts that I have and some of the things that I do and say. It can get very discouraging. And if I concentrate upon that, if I think upon that, and, and I don't have someone helping me to come to me and reminding me of the truth of Christ, I can get discouraged by all of that in my own sin. And there is Satan who comes and puts thoughts and so forth in our minds, it appears, you know, just shooting these little fiery darts as the Apostle Paul speaks of them into us. And we need to stop them some way. And one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways is to have people around us who encourage us, who speak truth to us. Uh, and, and to give us, therefore, courage in the midst of that. We live in a fallen world. Injustice seems to abound in our world. The difficulties, because of sin, seem to abound in the context of our lives. Friends die. Kids get cancer. Women are assaulted. Uh, work becomes weary. Financial concerns are real. We, we, we wonder what we can trust and what is really stable and true and all of that 
and it becomes discouraging. Riches, according to the scripture, are deceitful and we think they can satisfy. We go that way for a while and then we become discouraged about that because it really doesn't satisfy. So there's much to be discouraged about. And so God says, all right, what I want you to do is a company of people, a community of people, where there is encouragement. Uh, in fact, encouragement is a gift of the Spirit. And Romans in chapter 12, it's an exhortation, but it's not an exhortation of discipline. It's an exhortation that gives courage, that speaks truth. And so for those, the apostle says, who are exhorters or encouragers, encourage by faith, he says. So we need that. So the question this morning is, how is it that the gospel works in us in such a way that makes us to be encouragers, like Barnabas? How do we, how do we, how do we like that? Because I don't believe that Barnabas was necessarily naturally inclined to be an encourager. At least the scripture doesn't give us that appearance. Turn to Acts in chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Let me just read beginning uh, with verse 19 because we'll use some of this in a minute as well. Acts 11 verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The reports of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. So here's the picture. Um, this is chapter 11, so the gospel has already gone to Gentiles. It's really moving out. And he's saying, he's kind of backing up and saying, now remember the persecution that took place in chapter 7 of Acts when, 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 when after Stephen's death and then it began this persecution in chapter 8. Um, and, and people were spread from Jerusalem. And now he's saying it spread all the way to Antioch. People came to this place called Antioch, which is a Gentile place generally, and, and the gospel spread even to there. And so the word came back to the apostles. Now, because they were Presbyterians, they wanted to be connected with all of these churches. There weren't independent churches all over the place. And so when they heard that the gospel had gone to Antioch, they said, well, we need to be there. We need to send some people out and see how the gospel's going in Antioch because, because we're one church and we're connected. And so they sent Barnabas. Interesting choice. A Jew, a Levite, into this probably racially... Uh, ethnically, culturally, religiously mixed community in Antioch. Gentiles, Jews, all mixed up together. So here they were, and so they send one, not Peter, not Saul, because he's back in Tarsus still, just hanging out since chapter 9. But they send this one Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and look at what it says about him. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he, in my version, said exhorted, more literally translated, he encouraged them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for, I think if you have an NIV, it left out the for, which is a bad idea, so take your pen if you have an NIV and write the word for in there if it's not there. Um, F-O-R, for or because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. 
Now, why is it, or what enabled him better, what enabled Barnabas to be able to see the grace of God in them and to encourage them in their faith to live steadfast? What's the reason given? Not because he was naturally disposed to be an encourager or just to see good things in people and all that, but because he was a good man. And all that's an amazing expression to be in the Bible about a person. He was a good man. Now, why would he be considered a good man when we understand what the Bible says about our sinful hearts? He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now, what I think Luke is telling us about Barnabas is because he had been converted, because he was full of the Holy Spirit, because he was a man of faith, then that enabled him to be ethically good, morally good, to to do good things in the name of Jesus. Not naturally predisposed to those things, but because of his conversion, because of who he was in Christ. So it was his faith, full of the Holy Spirit, that enabled him then to be one who was an encourager. And as an encourager, when he went into this situation, what did he see? He didn't see a bunch of straggly Gentiles who had come to faith. He didn't see a bunch of straggly Jews that had come to faith. And whatever that meant and whatever the visual was there, what he saw was the grace of God. And that made him glad. He didn't come into a mature church. He didn't come into a church where everybody had their act together. He came into a church where the gospel had just come I don't know if you read missionary biographies. I don't know if you read missionary reports. But when we read them and we find when the gospel just comes into a place, those folks, no matter where it is, whether it's an inner city in the U.S. or whether it's in one of the other continents of the world, those people don't start out looking like us in terms of how they do things and how they worship and and how they they understand reverence before God or how they understand uh, how they're to, to behave and live and all of that, they're just babies. They're just raw. Here we are. Culture, hanging out, and everything. So here they are. So Barnabas, who knows what he saw, but what he saw was the grace of God. Why? Because full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. You see, it's the gospel that works in us can I put it, to have the ability to see where God is at work, to see grace in people and not simply be critical of people. And so he was able to see the grace of God. And that seems to be true of this man Barnabas, this encourager. Because you see, even back in Acts chapter 4, what did he do? He had empathy for people who were poor, people who were probably on the on the outside or the, the margins of, of this Christian community even back then. And so he took a piece of property and he sold it. And he didn't really have any ego in this because he didn't distribute it. He took a piece of property, he sold it, and he brought all the proceeds from that piece of property to the apostles. And he said, come here, shh, give this to the poor, would ya? It wasn't about him. 
And the reason he knew it wasn't about him, it wasn't about his ego, it wasn't about his position, it wasn't about his place, it wasn't about his notoriety, is because he was a man of faithful of the Holy Spirit. And people of faithful, filled with the Holy Spirit know themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his mercy. And so he's saying, who the heck am I? I don't put myself above anybody else. Here, you're the apostles. Here's some money. Give it to the poor. It's out of my hands. But I care for them because I know what it's like to be them. And even though he may have been a rich landowner or some kind of a landowner, it's a little odd being a Levite, but, but he had this property. It wasn't that he lorded it over anybody else. It wasn't he saw himself better than anybody else. Why? What, what gives a person a heart like that? Well, because they know who they really are. When they stand before God, they know who they are. Absolutely, positively no different than the person in need over there. And so he doesn't need credit for it. In fact, he takes Saul in the same kind of thing. Here's this Saul, and he's the one who can see the grace of God at work in him. And we may think it's easy to see the grace of God in the work of Saul of Tarsus, but it wasn't not given who he was. It's so hard for us to put that in our mind that he was a terrorist. He was a hated man who hated others. And now he's to be our friend. Who can see that kind of grace? Only somebody who understands that they're Saul of Tarsus. Only one who understands that without Christ, there's the same heart. Different manifestation, but same heart. And he would see himself, I suspect, as Saul of Tarsus and say, if you're going to accept me, you've got to accept him. If you're going to accept me as some kind of leader in this community, you've got to accept him as some kind of leader in this community. You can't keep him out just because of his past, because my past, while it may not have been exactly like his, was still an anti-God, anti-Christ past. And so he could see the very, the very grace of God. And that's what it's like to have empathy toward the underdog, empathy toward the outsider, empathy towards this one who doesn't look like the rest of us but has, has come in. That's what he sees. And then we see in him also a tremendous measure of humility. Because in this passage we just read in, in Acts chapter 11, the story goes on. The story goes that they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And our Barnabas is the big guy in Antioch. At that point in time, he preaches to them and he exhorts them and encourages them. And you can just see they probably love Barnabas. I mean, he's the first preacher that shows up, you know, from the big city. And, and here he is representing the apostles. And, and they would love him. And what does he then do? He sends for Saul. And I don't know if he knew this. I think he did. It was his... It was the undoing of his position. Because once Saul shows up on the scene and gets revved up, then he's the one who sort of takes over. And Barnabas goes into the background. In fact, if you're reading in the scripture, in chapters 11, and 12, and early parts of chapter 13, the expression is Barnabas and Saul. By the middle of chapter 13, the expression reads, Paul and his companions. From then on out, unless they're in Jerusalem, because I think the Jerusalem folks really understood Barnabas better, it's always Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and his companions. And you see, it's that kind of humility that says, 
I don't really care who gets the credit. Yes, I was the big one. I was the one they sent down first. But it's not about me. It's about the gospel. It's not about me. It's about the church. It's not about me. It's about the manifestation of the kingdom. It's not about me. It's about Christ. And so it doesn't matter. God has called Saul now. And so that's all right. I'll travel with him. Until, of course, we have a little rift in Acts 15 and then we'll get whatever, 16 and we'll get, we'll get to that later. But, but, but I'm going to travel with him. And I'll be second or third or twelfth or fifteenth or whatever it is. Now, why does the gospel enable us to do that? Do you understand, in order to encourage someone, what we oftentimes have to do is put ourselves in the background and say something good about them that God is doing in their lives. In fact, we may say enough about them, about what God is doing in their lives, that they get all the credit and we get none. Well, the reason that the gospel works that in us is because we really know who we are. We really know that it is about him. We really know that it really doesn't depend upon us. We really know that we're not the big shot. And so how can we pretend? So if somebody else gets the credit, bless them. It really doesn't matter. And then finally this. Because he was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, he was able to see the grace of God. Again, I don't know what he saw when he viewed them. I don't know what their first worship gathering was like. But I have a feeling it wasn't exactly like the ones Barnabas had come from because these were a bunch of new people. And if they were in charge of the worship service, who knew what they brought into this, to this gathering? Who knew what they looked like? Who knew what they sounded like? What they prayed like? What they sang like? Any of that? Who knew what that would be like? But we don't have any rebuke of Barnabas to them. We just simply have, he, he saw God at work in them. And that's what thrilled his soul. I, I read once this illustration. Actually, let me put it more clearly. I read an illustration once, and I've forgotten a lot of it, but I've recreated it, so this may not be it at all. So I'm just honest with you. I read it, it's a, it's a, I read it from Edith Schaefer. I don't read much about from Edith Schaefer. Uh, all I can remember reading is a book called Something About the Family. Um, but, um, uh, but my recollection is the illustration goes something... Uh, Something like this. Doug, you may know this illustration. You can correct me after the service and give me exactly the details since you know her, but knew her. But I, uh, it, to me, it goes something like this. That she had cleaned all the floors in the house, and her, one of her daughters, her daughter was outside uh, uh, working on plants and things. And so she put all together this, the daughter did this bouquet, but in so doing became very muddy and very dirty. And she came running into the house to show her mom this beautiful thing she had made, but in so doing, made the house just dirty and all the clean floors. And so, as every good mom knows, you have a great dilemma at that moment in time. What do you do? What do you see? Do you see the dirty floors or do you see the gift? Now, Edith says at that point in time, she chose to see the gift and not the dirty floors. And she was able to realize in my daughter's youthful, childish exuberance, she's missing the details here, which to Edith weren't details at all. 
but she was able to see the heart. She was able to see the grace of God. I personally, as many of you know, hate having my picture taken. I don't like pictures of me for a number of reasons. But I must confess that they're somewhat helpful, especially the ones from 30 years ago or more. Because when I look at them, I realize the grace of God. <laughs> Jeff was reminding me this morning of my wedding picture that has a wonderful Fu Manchu mustache. Nobody should have gotten married in the 70s or at least had pictures taken uh, of your marriages in the 70s. Uh, I'm so much envious of the people today getting there, getting married because they really do look a lot better than we did back then. But, 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 but I look at that and I say, oh my if I saw the present-day equivalents of me, my wife reminds me of this every time my daughters have a date, uh, uh, but if I knew, if I could see the, the, the today's equivalent, 18, 19, 20-year-old, of me, trust me, you'd look at that person and say, Satan is at work. <laughs> I see no grace at all. But the grace of God really was at work in me. And I would have missed it if I... And so I look at those pictures and I realize it isn't what I see. It isn't what I hear. Can I discern the grace of God? And does that make me glad? And see, we need to be in a community like that. When the rich look at the poor, what do they see? When the poor look at the rich, what do they see? When those with PhDs look at those who dropped out of high school, what do they see in the church? When those who dropped out of high school see those with PhDs, what do they see? Is there intimidation? Is there envy? Is there anger? Is there feelings of insecurity? Or are both able to see the grace of God? When the old look at the young, what do they hear? What do they see? When the young look at the old, what do they see? Are they able to see the grace of God? Or do the young just see old whippersnappers? And uh, the old just see these young, irreverent, cord-tripper-over people, <laughs> whatever they are. What do we see? What do we see? The grace of God. And how are we going to speak to each other? The rich to the poor, the poor to the rich, the educated, the uneducated, the Republicans to the Democrats, the Democrats to the Republicans. What do we see? The public schoolers and the homeschoolers and the Christian schoolers and the, I think that's about it, isn't it? Uh, what do we see? To the ones who are gifted to teach versus the ones who are gifted with mercy versus the ones who are gifted to encourage, the, the ones who are gifted to help. What do we see? Are we able to see the grace of God and rejoice? We must be that kind of a community. Else the gospel won't spread. Else the church won't be built else the kingdom won't be manifested. That's why we spend so much time talking about Jesus. That's why we spend so much time 
talking about the gospel because it's that which works in us by the Holy Spirit an encouraging heart a heart that empathizes with those who are different a heart that empathizes with those who are in need a heart that that is willing to stand on behalf of those who may be outside those who might be marginalized those who have particular needs it's it's the gospel that gives us that kind of heart the Holy Spirit and faith that gives us that kind of heart that enables us to step back and to promote another as Barnabas did It's the gospel that enables us to see the grace of God and rejoice and be happy about that and not see all the mud and all the dirt and everything else that's wrong. There's times and places for that, I suspect. But trust me, we get get that very naturally. (laughs) That's easy to see. It's easy to criticize. It's easy to say, this is wrong. That's, That's just like falling off a log for Americans. We need to see the grace of God. And the way that we do that is that we stand individually in the very presence of Jesus. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you think about me. In the same way he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this cup to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of The apostle says, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And just that expression, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, we have to ask the question, why did he die? Well, he died for us. He didn't die for his own sin. He died for ours. Well, if he died for our sins, what does that mean about us? It means that we're sinners, all of us. It means none of us is worthy inherently None of us is deserving inherently from the educated to the uneducated to the rich to the poor to the, to the Republican to the Democrat to the old to the young to the male to the female to the child whatever. None of us has it inherently altogether. No, no one here is the standard, you see. And when we come into the presence of Christ we come to know who the standard is. And then we look at him and then we look at ourselves and then we look at everybody else and you know what? We're all the same and he's the standard. There's no difference between us, really, but in his presence. And therefore that says, okay, let me look to see what God is doing in your life. Let me rejoice in the grace of God. You may look different than me. You may act different than me. There may be very many differences between us. But let me find where God's grace is at work. And let's together rejoice in that. I want to be part of a community like that. I want to be a person like that. 
And that doesn't mean there isn't room for discipline. That doesn't mean there isn't room for all these other things that are going through your mind right now. All the but, 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 buts. So stop those for a minute. And let's think about Jesus. And think about one another. Think about being a community of people that encourages, that comes alongside, that advocates, that speaks that word about for two, about what God is doing. And rejoice together. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us that you would forgive us our sins, me for being critical of things and people and stuff. But Father, I pray that we would be a community of people like Barnabas, this one you've given to us to model for us. That we might rejoice in what you're doing and speak that to one another, that we may be encouraged, we may have courage to continue to persevere, to be steadfast, as Barnabas exhorted, encouraged the people in Antioch, we may be steadfast in faith. So Lord Jesus, I pray that in this moment you'd meet us here uh, at this table, uh, that you'd take this bread, this juice in some way, because we know it's always bread and juice, but we pray that you would be present here by your spirit in such a way that we'll encounter you, we'll know you, that we'll see you as who you are. And in the midst of that, we'll see ourselves individually and ourselves corporately as who we are. We'll understand grace better and we'll look for it in each other because it's the grace that you give, which none deserves. So, Father, I pray that you would, God, I pray that you would work that now in us. Lord Jesus, meet us here. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table isn't the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. Easy sentence to get out, but know that to be true about you. Ask God to let that sink deep within you, to really know that. And as as you come, you're coming saying that, I know that I'm a sinner without hope except in God's mercy. And as a person then also, who believes and depends upon the Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel, that is, as the savior of sinners, those without hope, he's the hope. And so when you get up and you come, you're saying, that's true of me. I know that. Without Christ, I'm not only lost, I'm condemned as well I should be. But in him, I'm saved as well I shouldn't be other than his work, other than him. And you're saying, now I'm going to come and I'm going to live in such a way by God's grace, I pray, that will enable me to exalt Christ, to live as one who is a follower of Christ. Now that, that's true of you. Let me ask you to come. These two sections down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and I pray that you have going through your head at that time who you are, who we are, who Jesus is, and you purpose in your own heart to look for the grace of God in each other. Please come.